The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is God's holy word. Paul says, or... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Well, this is, this is really a great, great passage for a number of reasons. First of all, it is um, somewhat of a powerful summary uh, of 5.1 through 6.8. Okay? Of course, chapter 5, Paul dealt with the man uh, that was uh, in a form of sexual immorality, not even mentioned among the Gentiles. And then in chapter 6, he's dealing with what seems to be a, to us like no big deal, but Christians taking Christians to court. And so what he does here in 1, 6 through 9, uh, 6, 9 through 11, is that he, uh, in a sense, gives us now a summary of these last two chapters up to this point. Now, summary is probably not the best characterization of what he's doing here. Probably a better characterization than summary is is he is, in a sense, sort of effectively tying together 5, 1 through 6, 8. So for that reason, it is really sort of a powerful, powerful passage. Uh, But There's another reason why this passage is so incredibly valuable, and that is that it is, uh, in context, a very, very potent call to repentance. And I, I say that it's a call to repentance because it is a direct warning against continued patterns of sin. And the warning itself is a call to repentance. But it's also a call to repentance because in this passage, not only does Paul give us this this firm warning, but he also reminds them of the change that Christ had brought into their lives through the gospel. That too is a call and incentive to repentance. So what I'm arguing is, is that this, this little summation, this little summary section is really a call to repentance in two different ways. One, by way of warning, this is what will happen if you continue in these patterns of sin. But then also, it's a call to repentance by reminding them what Christ has done for them. We have to remember that sometimes the motivation for repentance uh, can be warning. Sometimes... Sometimes we need the spur. Sometimes we need, uh, sometimes we need God to take a two by four and smack us across the head. Other times 
we need the sweet reminders of, of what he's done for us. What we were and what he's made us. And sometimes it's that very reminder of God's kindness that brings us to repentance. This passage is also important because it stands as a serious warning and a strong encouragement. Now that, I wanna, that's different than what I just said. What I just said previously is in context, it's a call to repentance. Here, what I'm saying is that this passage actually stands, not just as a call to repentance, but it stands for the church as a serious, serious warning. There are a handful of these kinds of warnings in the New Testament, and we are absolutely foolish if we don't take these warnings to heart. These warnings are not for other people. These warnings are for us. It's also a powerful reminder of the Christian's past and the Christian's present. And so these, these, uh, these few verses actually end up, it, it, there's a sense in which they can stand alone. You can go to this passage and actually see, uh, sense the very force of the text. And then one other reason why I think that this passage is so vitally important is I believe that this is a crucial passage when it comes to biblical counseling. Actually helping people in their fight with sin. This is a great text. And so, because of the clear importance of this passage, we're going to give a, a tremendous amount of attention to exegetical detail. All right? So, I'm just going to tell you that if you're sleepy exegetical detail, it's going to be a challenge. So um, take a big gulp of oxygen and uh, pray that it goes straight to your brain. And we'll get started. Now, what kind of exegetical detail am I talking about? Well, verse 9, the word or. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's the level of detail that we're talking about. Now, I, I know that, that this doesn't float all your boats, but let me just say that this little word or is incredibly important. In fact, it's, it's a shame some translations actually leave it out. Um, it is, uh, it, it's actually just one letter in the Greek text, but it is what's called uh, a disjunctive. And what it's doing is it's making an implicit contrast, so you, you actually have to see why Paul puts the or in right here. And the only way to see that is if we back up to verse 7. Paul says, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not be wronged? Why not be treated unjustly? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know? The or actually ends up implying this, um, what, what you could call this, this counter scenario, which, which ends up, um, in a sense, sort of causing the listeners to start to register the significance of what they are doing. All right? 
Paul then asks the question, or do you not know? Now, he's already actually used this uh, device in chapter 6 already. He uses it all the time. Sometimes he's politer about it. For instance, Ephesians 5, you also knowing this, right? That's, that's how he says it to the Ephesians, the Corinthians. Do you not know? And he uses this actually 10 times. And, and, and as we've noted, every time we've come across it, there is by way of implication in this question an indictment saying to them, you should know. You are living in this way. You are doing these things to the contrary, to in, in the contrast. Do you not know? You know, one, one of the things that is, that is just um, uh, common truth in the Christian life is it's not typically that we don't know enough. So we just don't do what we know. Right? How many of you have ever thought, you know what? If only I would have learned one more doctrine, I could have fought that temptation. So it doesn't work that way. Right? It doesn't work that way. And we're all about the importance of learning and growing and understanding and, and, and growing in our theological, doctrinal, biblical understanding. All of that's absolutely true. But here's, here's our problem. It is not typically that we don't know enough. It's simply that we don't do what we know. And so when Paul says, or do you not know, he's basically saying, look, you say one thing with your life, And it betrays the very fact that you know different. In fact, we could put it this way. It's like Paul saying to the Corinthians, your life is a very indictment that you ought to know better. Anybody feel the force of that? Your life is an indictment that you ought to know better. In fact, you do know better. Now, he goes into the content of what they ought to know. And that is this, that, this introduces what they should clearly know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand that that the unrighteous here that you see in verse 9, unrighteous, this is very clearly connected to verse 8, where and it's it's not it's not as straightforward, at least in the NAS, um, because in verse eight it says, "On the contrary, you yourselves wrong." The word "wrong" there is is a form of you do injustice. Okay, when he gets to verse nine, it is the same word. All right, it's just put in a noun form. So you could, you could see the connection something like this. You commit injustice. Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? 
That's, that's the connection. And, and, and let me just say, before we get to Paul's uh, list of vices here, that in the context, what Paul is doing is he is driving home the fact that when we treat each other unjustly, when we wrong each other, we are actually living lives that exclude us from the kingdom of God. We, we typically look at the vice lists and we go, okay, yeah, that sin's ugly, that sin's ugly, that sin's ugly. So when Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he just has turned around and said, and you treat unjustly and you defraud and that a brother, right? So Paul is, um, is in a real sense driving home the, the gravity of this, and so notice he says, the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Now, here's another little detail in the text. It's interesting to know that the usual construction in Greek would be the kingdom of God, and of God would be would follow the kingdom. That's 99% of the time, that's the way that this expression would be. What Paul does here, though, is he takes that phrase of God and actually puts it at the front, which it, it, that ends up doing um, a couple of things. First of all, it is um, putting God in the emphatic position so that there's a, a conveyance with, of, of a certain force, of a certain emphasis so you could, you could think of it this way. So the unrighteous, God's kingdom, they will not inherit. Those that defraud and treat unjustly in this life, they might build up a nice little kingdom for themselves in this life by their sin, by their wrongdoing, but make no mistake about it. They may have their little kingdom temporarily, but God's kingdom, they will not inherit. By the way, inherit God's kingdom is not some sort of code word for special reward in the life to come. It is special code word for simply entering into eternal life. Okay? In other words, put it this way. If you don't inherit God's kingdom, you'll perish. Okay? Then Paul says, do not be deceived. You have to appreciate this because 39 times in the New Testament, it tells us, it warns us against deception, all right? 39 times. Paul is relatively fond of this as well, using this very expression no less than five times, all right? Do not be deceived, so he'll say it, for instance, again in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad, tell me the rest, company corrupts good morals. He uses it in Galatians 6 and verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap, right? The one sowing to the flesh 
will reap corruption. The one sowing to the spirit will reap eternal life. All right? That's, so, so think about this for a second. Just take the 1 Corinthians 15, 33 passage. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why do you think Paul has to preface bad company corrupts good morals with do not be deceived? It, it doesn't take a lot of thought, right? It's because we typically do not see how bad company negatively influences us, right? Right? We, we, we think that somehow we're strong, we're going to pull them up, we're going to be a good influence, and then we go on, and then we realize that what's happened is, like we saw a few weeks ago, one bad apple does what? Spoils the whole bushel, right? So don't be deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, hey, this is something that you will easily not see. Think about this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Why preface it with do not be deceived? Because we, by nature, always think that we are the exception We think that under normal circumstances, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's usually true with those people. But with me, I actually have been getting away with it for years. Don't be deceived. In other words, just because God hasn't killed you yet, doesn't mean that he's not taking notice and there's a harvest coming, right? Don't be deceived. Here, think about why Paul would preface. Do not be deceived. He's just said the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And then he gives us a list of people. And then he says, at the end, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here's why Paul says, don't be deceived. It's because, once again, we always think we're the exception. We always think that loved ones are the exception. We always think that the people around us must be exceptions. And what Paul is actually saying is, listen, you can't actually live a life where you are justifying your own sin, making excuses for yourself, and actually think that somehow you're an exception to the rule. Don't be deceived. You're not an exception to the rule. Period. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you went to seminary, right? That doesn't mean you're exempt from the rule. It doesn't matter if you homeschool. You're not exempt from the rule. It doesn't matter if, you know, put whatever you want in there. A lot of times what we end up doing is we end up somehow thinking that, that even though we would never, ever, ever, ever in a million years betray our Protestant conviction and say that I know somehow the good's going to outweigh the bad, we would never, ever say that as a confession of faith. And yet, oftentimes, we really do think that some of the good stuff we do must in some way mitigate uh, our pet sins so that God doesn't care as much about those 
those things because I tithe or I'm a member. I teach Sunday school. I do this, I do that, I do the other thing. And the fact is, is Paul says, listen, don't be deceived. You're not an exception. My goodness, and and, and if if there's anybody... All right, let me just say, everybody needs to hear this. But if there's anybody that needs to hear it, it's pastors. You know why? Because you spend time helping people, you spend time trying to minister to people, you spend time counseling, you spend time doing all these things, And it is very, very easy to think that somehow, somehow, I'm an exception. There are no exceptions. Period. I'm not one, and you're not one. I got heartbreaking news from a a church actually a group of churches in a foreign country. And the letter was addressed to me, and it was a letter that said, because of your, because of your role in, in helping us come to reform teaching, blah, 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 and because of your relationship with us, we wanted to let you know that one of our pastors has been removed from the pastorate because we found out that he was physically abusing his wife. You know what struck me was that every Sunday that guy would get up and he'd open his Bible. And every Sunday he would offer prayer. And every Sunday he would talk to God's people. And and he would administer the Lord's table. And he would sit and counsel with people who were struggling. And all the while um, being physically abusive to his wife. There are no exceptions. None. God doesn't lower the standard or let you cut a corner. Period. Do not be deceived. Um, We have to understand here that this warning against self-justification and excuse-making, which, by the way, any of you notice that by nature we we have a tendency to self-justification? Are, are we actually good at it? Oh, we're really, we're, if there was a PhD in self-justification, we would all be double docs. All right? It's just, it's the way we are by nature, right? And so this little device that Paul uses, do not be deceived, of course, is this warning against self-justification, against excuse making. But there's also this implication, of course, that deception is a real possibility. Right? It's a real possibility. And so, what's going to follow here is going to be a, a literary function of the command that is meant to draw out this extra attention of what follows. So, don't be deceived. And then Paul's going to give us a list here. And in other words, the don't be deceived is basically saying, listen to me, listen to me. Give me your full attention on this. You you can't afford to nod off at this point. Give me your full attention. 
And here's what he does. He goes, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And, and what's interesting is that this little word, neither or nor, is actually put in front of each word in the passage. Okay, so you're, you ready for this? This is called polysyndeton. All right? Write it down because you're not going to want to forget it. Actually, it is a figure of speech that is common. For instance, Mark Twain loved it. Uh, Charles Dickens loved it. And it is a literary technique using conjunctions repeatedly when unnecessary to create both a sense of rhythm and a sense of gravity. In other words, Paul could have just said something like, like this. Um, the sexually immoral, comma. Idolaters, comma. Adulterers, comma. The effeminate, comma. Right? He could have just done it like, given us a list like that. All right? But instead, what he does is before every single category, he says, neither so it reads, and, um, you know, the, the New American Standard does this. I don't know if the ESV does, probably does. But just listen to this. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You get the point? Fornicators. Well, you want to really flip somebody out today? Use the word fornication. <laughs> people, people don't even know what that is, right? Right? Fornication. This is our word porneia that Paul's already used. And it is often translated the sexually immoral. And let me just, let me just put it in as simple terms as possible. And that is sex is designed to be within marriage between the husband and the wife, period. Sex outside of the bonds of marriage is fornication. Okay? So that means premarital sex is fornication. Now, premarital sex in our culture is a given, but it is fornication. It is accepted, but it's fornication. Notice, Paul actually begins the list with porneia. Why? Because of what he's talked about in chapter 5, what he's going to talk about again in chapter 6, 12 through 20. So, neither fornicators. You know what that means. Let me, just, let me just spell it out for you very quickly. If you are a fornicator, repent or you will go to hell. That's what it means. Are there repentant fornicators who will enter the kingdom of God? And the answer is yes. But the only kind of fornicator that will inherit the kingdom of God is a repentant fornicator. 
And that doesn't just mean somebody that's sorry that they got caught. It means that somebody that has stopped their sin and turned from it. Nor idolaters. Woo! We're off the hook on that one. I don't have any idols in my house. I don't have any little statues, ceramic wood or otherwise. Well, just remember, what is an idolater? An idolater is anyone who puts anything in the place of God as an object of worship, object of trust, object of love, or object of satisfaction. Wow! That changes things. By the way, I put for your incredible discomfort and and conviction a little essay by John Piper on idolatry. Read it, okay? Please, please, read it. So, nor idolaters. Anybody that puts anything in the place of God as an object of worship, trust, love, or satisfaction. Which means... That if your boyfriend is more important to you than God, you're an idolater. And if your car is more important to you than God, then you're an idolater. And if your job is more important to you than God, then you are an idolater. And if football is more important to you, then you're an idolater. And if your big screen TV is more important to you than God, then you're an idolater. You get the point, right? Right? Okay. Nor adulterers. (laughs) You have to understand, Paul is, um, is, is, is completely unafraid to expound a biblical sexual ethic. Just as sure as all fornication is wrong, so it is always, always wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse in any way. Adultery is unfaithfulness to your spouse. Okay? Fornication is sex outside of marriage. Adultery is very specifically the act of infidelity committed against a spouse. And that, by, by the way, there is, there should be a sense of gravity when it comes to the sin of adultery. And the reason is, is because a husband and a wife have entered into a covenant with each other, which they have bound by oath. They've exchanged vows. And those vows are, I will be faithful to you and to the Lord in both body and soul until the Lord shall return or death shall part us. In fact, when God wants to, um, when God wants to actually get to the, the, the utter gravity of the sin of idolatry, he likens it to adultery. The reason is, is because we should have a covenant fidelity to God. When we break that covenant fidelity, that's idolatry, and it is akin to the sin of adultery which is violation of covenant. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, if you have the ESV, pay close attention. I'm going to read the NAS here again. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. 
I highly object to the way the ESV does this. And with good reason. What does the ESV do, Jason? Since I know you've got one. What's that? Men who practice homosexuality. So you know what the ESV does. By the way, NIV does the same thing. Takes the two categories, effeminate, homosexual, and and just simply uh, melds them into one category as men who practice homosexuality. All right? There, there's a reason why that is, um, in my estimation, inadequate. And that's because Paul actually uses two words here, not just one. And the two words that he uses end up... Uh, put it weird, but they end up complementing each other. All right? So, um, let me just explain this as uh, tactfully as I can. The first word that the New American Standard translates effeminate is the Greek term molokos, which meant, originally at least, soft. New English translation accurately translates this word as the passive partner. The new RSV, shockingly, says male prostitutes. It's just, that's, by the way, that's a nonsense translation. Now, the next word that the NAS has is homosexuals. Paul uses this word, by the way, in 1 Timothy 1.10. But here's the, here's the amazing thing, is that before Paul, this word is not in usage. There's a reason. It's because Paul makes it up. Paul coins the word. Okay? New English translation, practicing homosexuals. Uh, new RSV does a better job than what they did with male prostitutes and goes for the old-fashioned term, sodomite. Now, when the ESV actually brings both of these words together, as well as the uh, NIV, men who practice homosexuality, what they end up doing is they end up up sort of flatlining what Paul is expressing by way of nuance. So the first word that we have, effeminate, By the way, I'm going to argue that that's probably not the best way to translate this word, effeminate. I know why the NAS does it, because the idea is it means soft. And so the the word was sometimes used in terms of, you know, uh, sort of, um, well, we would say ineffeminate, but sort of a feminized male, right? The reason that's not necessarily the best is because Effeminate may actually express um, something in our culture regarding, let's say, a lack of manliness, that that's not what the text is after, all right? It's not what the text is after. In fact, um, I know this is going to sound just absolutely awful to you, but you have to understand that the that the Emphasis in this word is the passive partner in the homosexual relationship. All right? 
the one who takes on the feminine role. The other word that Paul uses is a compound word of for man and then the verb uh, koitas, which actually we, we use the word coitus um, to express the, uh, the sexual act. Paul brings these two words together, and these two words actually come from the Septuagint rendering of Leviticus 20 and verse 13. And so Paul coins this word that literally means a man better, B-E-D-D-E-R. Or a man who has relations with another man. Taken together, the words actually describe both the passive and the active partners in a homosexual relationship. Why go into uh, such detail? Well, there's, there should be an obvious reason, and that is we live in a culture that is doing everything it can to say that the Bible does not forbid homosexual relationships. And as long as it's monogamous and loving, then God puts a stamp of approval on it, and that is patently untrue. In fact, homosexuality, both among males and females in Romans chapter 1, is not, does not only invoke the wrath of God, it's actually a sign of the judgment of God. Okay. So we have to understand, and, and when we finish Genesis, we'll get to Romans. So um, just hang on, keep taking your vitamins. Um, when you get to Romans chapter 1, you have to understand that homosexuality is, is the judgment of God. It's the result of God turning depraved humanity over. Okay. What that means for us in particular is that we are experiencing before our very eyes the judgment of God on us as a nation. We're not just doing things to invoke the judgment of God or provoke the judgment of God. We are actually living with demonstrations of the judgment of God. The fact, for instance, that our Supreme Court would actually um, prohibit any state from prohibiting same-sex marriages is not just a a bad decision, certainly a bad decision. It's the judgment of God. That's what happens when we continue to go our own way and refuse to follow God's word. One One of my biggest concerns is for our young people because they will be bombarded in ways that that most of us never ever were with the so-called validity of gay marriage and homosexual relationships. 
They'll be exposed to it in ways that we never were. They will be desensitized to it in ways that we never were. And that, too, is the judgment of God on our society. And so, young people, stay true to God's word. It will cost you, but it will cost you more if you're faithless. Now, we go to North Thieves. So just in case, you know, you're like, oh, all those nasty, icky, icky sins. Now we, North Thieves. And by, by the way, a thief is uh, the, the word, klepti, which we, right? Kleptomaniac, right? Which is not a disorder, it's a sin. Okay? By the way, there's a, you ever read Augustine's Confessions? It's absolutely brilliant. And uh, there's this great section on um, where Augustine is expressing the way sin operates in the human heart. And he is uh, he's recounting a time when he's a young man. He's with his other companions. And they're walking by a man's pear orchard. Okay? If you've read the Confessions, you remember this for sure. And Augustine and his Buddies go into the pear orchard and they steal all of these pears. And Augustine says, we didn't steal them because we were hungry. We didn't steal them because they even looked that good. In fact, we took about one bite and then dumped them out for pigs. We took them because we knew we shouldn't. We took them because we knew we shouldn't. Thief. Thief. Does that word sort of have a little bit of a filthiness sound to it? A thief. Now, you have to understand, a thief is a person who who does what? It's a person who... um, takes what does not belong to him or her by force or by fraud. Right? So, there are more ways of being a thief than just breaking into somebody's house or going and taking something that doesn't belong to you. There are other ways of of, of being a thief. And sometimes it is by fraud. Sometimes it's by deceit. Sometimes it's by manipulation. Sometimes it's just by lying. Um, for instance, lying on your tax returns and not paying the money that you, that you actually owe is stealing. You say, well, the government stole it first. Okay, well, that's a great ethic. Okay. Being a thief. Getting paid for eight hours of work and only doing six. It's a thief. Nor the greedy. Great. The greedy. (laughs) By the way, this is simply a person who does what? who desires to have more than is due. And in Ephesians 5.5, Paul says, greed is idolatry. (laughs) So you understand, we're we're all getting skewered pretty good, right? 
nor drunkards. Well, drunk on what? I mean, doesn't that qualify whether this counts? And the answer is no. If you actually look up in Bowerart and Gingrich, it will talk about drunkards. That is, those who are addicted to vices. In fact, the emphasis on drunkard is the emphasis on the intoxication itself, not the means. So this would mean alcohol, drugs, and by the way, I'm working on a sermon for this coming up shortly, marijuana. Okay. Why? Well, because it used to be that if somebody came in and said, hey, obviously God blessed all the herbs of the earth and I mean, Willie Nelson, after all, is just sort of like the poster child of, of all the positive benefits of pot. Um, and, um, you know, at least pastors were able to fall back on, on what? It's illegal. Well, now guess what? It's not. The question is, is, is there an intoxication? The answer is Yes. If there is an intoxication, it falls under the category of drunkenness. Now, the sermon will be longer than, than that, I can promise. But the emphasis doesn't fall on the means, the emphasis falls on the result. I mean, you can, you can, um, what do they drink? Uh, they pop the, 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 it's an aerosol, and especially on Indian reservations. Uh, yes, yeah. So, and of course, it produces a, a high, right? Um, you know, um, the stuff that ladies spray in their hair, and, you know, you can, you can, you can become intoxicated in lots of different ways. Sharpies, or not Sharpies so much anymore, but you remember in the old days, the big heavy felt pins, right? And in eighth grade, guess what? All the kids had their heads stuck in their desk and sniffing the big felt pins, all right? So get it out of your head that it's the means, it's the end, it's the result. Nor abusers. We noted this a few weeks ago, reviler, slander, abusive person. What's interesting is that in biblical and extra-biblical vice lists, drunkards and abusers are typically joined together because the idea is the verbally abusive. Nor swindlers. Man, we've already had this list, right? Paul's gone over these things already in chapter 5. The swindler. Technically, I mean, really, it's, it's, it, it's actually literally used of wolves in, um, in Matthew 7. Ravenous wolves. The idea is a rogue. Now, by the way, I wanted to double check my definition on rogue, so I typed in rogue on the internet. You know how long it took me to actually find a definition of rogue because of some stupid movie that has 
all of the Google references now swallowed up. And I don't even know what movie is this. Yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you what a rogue is. Forget what you saw in the movies. A dishonest, unprincipled man. We would say a scoundrel. There's another, that's a good word. Why don't we use it anymore? Scoundrel, right? Here's Paul's list, and then he says this. After this list, he then says, kingdom of God shall not inherit. I want to tell you that this is as serious as it can be. Kingdom of God shall not inherit. Here's the thing is that we can't minimize this. If there's no exceptions, if God doesn't say, okay, I know you're greedy, but you know what? You really do a great job working at the soup kitchen. It's okay. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And so the idea is, is that there is this, there is this consistent testimony of scripture. The unrighteous, those who have a pattern of sinful behavior that they are unrepentant of, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21, all tell us that there are people that in, don't be deceived. There are people, don't be one of them, who justify their sin, make excuses, live their life, do their own thing, and then on the last day, they go to hell. You understand that continuing in such sinful behavior puts a person in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. You understand that? The warning is a real warning. This is, this is one of the problems with the way that, that we sometimes just read the warnings. We read the warnings like they're for other people. And it's like, no, the warnings are for us. Gordon Fee says, by persisting in the same behavior as those already destined for judgment. Persisting in the same behavior as those already destined for judgment, they're placing themselves in the very real danger of that same judgment. If it were not so, then the warning would be no warning at all. You say to yourself, well, I mean, I believe in eternal security. Well, you know what? So do I. I do too. But if you are a greedy, covetous person and you don't repent, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are a fornicator, you are an adulterer, and you do not repent, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are a swindler, 
if you are an abusive person, if you have words that just come out of your mouth that are just designed just to tear people down, and that's just the way you talk to people, guess what? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. The question is, so are we going to take God's word seriously, or are we going to let some perverted, twisted view of eternal security lull us into our own damnation? That's the question. The threat, because it's a real, real warning. An old, old friend of mine said to me many years ago, he said, Brian, he said, the elect believe in perseverance. Everyone else, once saved, always saved. Think about that. The elect believe in perseverance. What does that mean? That means those who are Christ's sheep. Who know his voice and who follow him. Are those who take the warnings seriously. Christ's true sheep. Never dismiss the warnings or threats of God. Christ's true sheep never think. Ha, huh, that's just for the goats. It's for me. It's for you. Everyone else, eh, once saved, always saved. I said the prayer. I walked the aisle. I filled the card. Parents, let me, just, let me just say, you don't do your kids any favors if in the face of their continuing sin against God, you just go back to, well, I remember when you were four, you prayed to receive Jesus. You're not doing your kids any favors. They're out there fornicating. They're out there sinning up a storm, doing their own thing. And you know it, and you don't have the guts to tell them, listen, uh, if you continue in this and you don't repent, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you know Charles Spurgeon was raised by his grandmother and grandfather. His grandfather was a godly pastor. His grandmother, in fact, told him, Charles, you need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've heard the gospel in your grandfather's preaching many, many times. You've heard the gospel in our home many, many times. If you do not trust Christ and live for Christ, then on the last day I'll stand up and give my hearty amen to your eternal damnation. You don't do any favors to your kids by somehow upholding some flimsy house of cards of a decision that they made. You do them a favor by exhorting them 
to continue in the path of repentance and faith. You don't do yourself any favors by making excuses. You take to heart the warnings. Don't be deceived. Let's pray. Father, you know how much I wanted to get to verse 11, and the such were some of you. That's the encouragement, that's the, the glad part of the gospel. But Lord, we leave it to you in your providence, and we pray that you would use this unbelievably stern warning to awaken us out of our slumber in sin. Father, we pray that you would immunize us by your holy word so that we would not be the kind of people that justify our actions and make excuses for our sins and find ourselves with a sense of of false hope and flimsy assurance. Father, help us to see that once we have peace with you, we have a fight with sin all the way to the end. We thank you for your grace that equips us to fight and to win. We pray that we would take it seriously with all of our hearts. We pray this in the name of the one who has washed us, sanctified us, and justified us. Your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, next week we'll get to verse 11, which is, by the way, far more encouraging than 9 and 10. But what makes 11 encouraging is 9 and 10. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.